Hello. Hi, Chris. Good evening. Or good, is it good night there too? Yeah. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. To have my tea with me. I, was I, have, I have some water here with me. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Yeah, definitely. I, I've been so excited. And sorry if I if my hair is like blowing. I have the fan on because it's like 80 degrees here right now. And um, so Hannah, I've been running around the whole day. How was your day today? Did you work today or? Yeah, I did. So I was up at 5 a.m. I've been working in the ICU now. I, I'm This is my ICU month. Mm -hmm. So it was busy. We actually got a few COVID patients. We're starting to see the rise now which is really scary because we're seeing it in the North because I'm in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm doing my fellowship. We're starting to see a lot more cases and so and they're all just so young. It's really uh -huh. scary. Yeah. So I talked to one of my friends who was working in the CCU the other week. So when we had the spike here in New York at like last year, you know, most of our patients were like in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, like the geriatrics. And recently, all we've been seeing was like, below 40 years old and it's like there's this shift in this age demographic and i just can't imagine how it is like being a physician in the icu right now well anyways we'll get into all of that if you could please first introduce yourself to everybody and again thank you so much for being with me tonight i've been so excited for our, our episode yes i'm really excited to be joining you thank you for having me on my name is nina dr c i guess you can call me i'm a pulmonary critical care fellow here in detroit and i am in my last year so looking for jobs but but um, I do have to say my whole training for pulmonary critical care, specifically in the ICU, has been completely impacted by COVID. So it's been quite a ruckus. But yeah, like you said, we'll definitely be getting all into it. Wow. A fellow in the pulmonary in ICU during when COVID started. I just can't. I mean, this is like, this is your land, right? COVID is like the, the respiratory, the pulmonary team is the land of COVID. And I just can't imagine how everything has changed when COVID came in. Sometimes I feel like, wait, what pulmonary cases were there before COVID started? I feel like COVID like shifted everything. Anyways, fellowship, obviously, there was a long road that happened right before fellowship. I feel like your whole life has just been studying, studying, studying to get where you are now. Medical school here in the United States, and I guess all over the world too, is so long, right? We usually have four years of undergrad four years of medical school, X amount of years of residency, and then uh, you want to do fellowship, right? Or subspecialize. It's such a long road. How did you get into here? What were your inspirations? Were your anyone in the family, doctors, friends? Or? Yeah, good question. So my mom is a physician, so that mm -hmm. definitely affected me. My sister is a physician as well. So kind of growing up, I was uh, yeah. kind of in the world of medicine. Yeah. Just growing up, I was seeing how she was treated, all her patients, how she would help people, how she would speak about that. That definitely had an impact on me. So I knew kind of growing up that this is what I wanted to do. So I kind of tailored my education towards it. I did my undergrad in Florida. That's where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And then I did my medical school in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. um, at the University of Antigua. And then did my internal medicine residency at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And now I'm here in Detroit for my fellowship. So kind of all over the place. When anyone I first meet, are they hear that? They're like, wait, what are you doing? <laughs> where are you from? <laughs> yeah. Or were you here before this? Wow, that is such a long road. I mean, medicine as a whole is such a long and arduous and stressful road. In part, it makes sense because of the amount of the kind of work that you do, right? Literally the executive decisions when it comes to patients' lives. I forget everyone trusts Nicki Minaj more <laughs> or the random Facebook meme. Me and Dr. Parikh were talking, Pravi Parikh were talking about, about it earlier. I guess the whole Nicki Minaj situation. Was it the swollen testicles from the COVID vaccine from her cousin's friend? Her cousin. is, is that what was going on? Her cousin. Uh, from Trinidad, right? Oh, wow. One question that I always ask all the physicians that were here was years and years of studying and training, a lot of sacrifices made, money, time, stress. Do you have any regrets leading up to where you are now? That's a great question. That's hard to say. Yeah. I, definitely, I definitely live life. Maybe a little more than I should, but I mean, YOLO. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't think I have any regrets. I wouldn't change where I am or what I did or how my journey was. Whether it was the bias that I got from coming from a med school or, or my training now being full of COVID yeah. and not seeing normal bread and butter stuff. It's easy to say that, yeah, there, it, there are regrets because you lose a lot of your life. You like you look on your stories and everyone's in Greece or everyone's at New York Fashion Week and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> well, you're like doing a line or something in the ICU. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say I have any regrets. No, everything I'm supposed to 
happen happen the way it did. Yeah, and that's the same answer that every single one has said, and it was just very inspiring and encouraging. So, I mean, I've been working as a nurse for two years, but I did go back to school to do a post-bac program to pursue medical school. So basically, restarting all over again and entering this whole new road. And it's so encouraging and so satisfying to hear that there are no regrets. I mean, it wasn't easy for sure, right? <laughs> the amount of studying and a lot of sacrifices that you have done. What is one advice that you would give to a student who's aspiring to do medicine? Never give up. Also, don't compare. It's yeah, so... That's true. Everyone yeah. always do medical, medicine in general kind of pins you where you feel like you have to compare with one another. Like, yeah. oh, or they have this USMLA score or this. What's... Yeah. How are you going to compare? But... Yeah. And don't give up. Those are the two biggest things I would say. I agree. Thank you so much. Yeah, I feel like comparison is a very, very prevalent thing, especially in the pre-med world, right? Which is, I, I think, is so toxic. Oh, which school are you going to? What, what MCAT score did you get? What's your GPA? And it's like everything in a percentile range. And at the end of the day, once you get out of medical school, you're a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> everybody else. And yes, you've completed it all. And now we are in pulmonary critical care. What led you to this point? Why home crit? Why did you choose this field? That's a great question. I knew I wanted to do critical care when I was a mm. third patient. In mm. third year school, you do your basic patients. Mm -hmm. So your patients like internal medicine, OB-GYN, pediatric, mm -hmm. surgery, uh, family medicine. So you do all those. And then in internal medicine, there were a lot of codes, like code blues overhead, mm -hmm. hospital. And then I would go to mm -hmm. some of the code blues and they were run so well. I thought it was fascinating how they brought someone back to life. The person who ran that was a critical care doctor. So I was like, oh, mm -hmm. wow. Is, this is awesome. I feel, this is what I, what I want to do. So I knew that from then. And then I did extra rotations as a med student mm -hmm. in critical care and ICU. I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. I love that you can manage every aspect of the patient. You take consultants, all their advice into consideration. But at the end of the day, it's like it's what you want to do, especially with closed ICU. So I just, yeah. I love every aspect of the patient as for the ICU part. The pulmonary came on later in residency. That's when I was like, okay, I want to do palm crit and not just crit. Yeah, um, the lungs are fascinating, and mm -hmm. I don't think importance played to the lungs until yeah. COVID. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And I think pulmonary always like match up with cardiopulmonary, right? It's like it never has a name of its own, and till COVID came, and everything is respiratory, everything is pulmonary. And I agree with you with the whole critical care part. I do flow in the ICU sometimes, and I'm like, wow, this is a different beast. The amount of mind and skill and the critical thinking and reasoning it takes to like thrive in the ICU is, it's like bewildering and mind-blowing and you mentioned earlier about bread and butter let's say pre-covid-19 what would be the bread and butter in a pulmonary critical care field yeah so palm and right, let, we'll start with the icu it was so funny yeah. because i was talking with my attending today she was like i miss the normal bread and butter yeah. cases yeah. Yeah. from like a cellulitis nectarizing yeah. factors yeah. calcium overdose yeah. beta mm -hmm. overdose mm -hmm. heroin overdose mm -hmm. so over I guess it's a category, septic yeah. shock category from not COVID, um, <laughs> like PEs, massive PEs. Yeah. We get that from COVID. We also get it from other things too. Status epilepticus, mm -hmm. like just like random DKs, yeah. all that used to be, yeah. it used to be so prevalent and so easy to like just go down the algorithm are now like kind of missing. And we're like, mm -hmm. wait, where did it go? Mm -hmm. It's true, like, like the whole medical sphere was changed when COVID came in. Um, I mean, we see that right now too, right? Which we'll delve into later as well. It's like cases that would be easily managed in a certain hospital can't be anymore because we have no space for them in the ICUs, right? Because it's all filled with COVID in certain states, which is so sad. And then, so those old, well, not old, but those prevalent bread and butter cases pre-pandemic. And then now it's all COVID. So did you just start your fellowship when oh, COVID came it was last uh, year. Started 2020. I was a second year though. Got it. So you just hit the mark right there, right? So when we were hearing news of, oh, this novel coronavirus, it's a respiratory virus and news are going all around the world and the media. How did you feel about that? Knowing that like this is your playing field, <laughs> pulmonary is where you are. Yeah, I'm very bewildered. All of us were. None of us knew exactly what was happening. Yeah it what to expect that was like the biggest thing like what do you expect yeah and no one knew what to do right even like the guidelines there were no guidelines yet at that point like, really 
Yeah, like, do we wear a mask that time? Do we not wear a mask? And there's, like, so much PPE shortage all all across the country, right? And what were your biggest fears, I guess, when COVID was just starting in the hospital, especially that you are the heart being in the critical care unit? I think it was bringing it to my family. Yeah, yeah. That was the biggest part, I think, giving it to somebody. You, you're never really worried about yourself, yeah. but you're worried about bringing it to someone. I think the guilt, yeah, that, that was what a lot of my colleagues as well faced too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I've always thought of like, oh my gosh, what if I bring it home to my family, to my mom, right? Or to my loved ones or to my friends. And it was such a scary time. How do you think your practice was changed because of COVID-19 so far as a physician? Well, I'm always looking out for that. Yeah. A lot of hand sanitization. You're always on edge, I think. Like, even if it, if they test negative, you're still, like, really cautious. It's always going to be back of your mind. And you also learn to appreciate. I think gratitude has come a long way. I agree. I agree. And it, I think COVID-19 and being in the healthcare sphere as well and taking care of COVID patients, right? Like, it just reminds you how short life is. Like Absolutely. Oh my gosh. When my unit was converted to a COVID ICU, I just got out of orientation as a new graduate nurse that time. So I was just getting used to my cardiac surgery step down unit and then COVID came in and I was like, oh my goodness, what, what am I supposed to do? Even the even the senior nurses and residents are like, yeah, we're not sure what to do. And it was just so scary for everybody. And I remember staff crying. I remember patients that we've had for a long time, like passing away, right? Did you feel that, I think there there was a term that was coined throughout the pandemic and it was called moral injury. Basically, people are saying it just reached a point where healthcare workers working with the COVID patients, working the COVID ICUs just got numb to a point because of how many patients were dying. Do you think you reached that point of that burnout, especially during the spike of it all? Yeah, I definitely think so. I don't think that there's any physician out there who is working the heart of it who didn't. Between ER yeah. and ICU, I think yeah. Yeah. it felt throughout. And I still think it's it's starting. It's coming back if it already isn't back. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think you try to feel or do, yeah. it just kind of comes on. Yeah. And then I feel like, especially for you as a physician, right? Um, obviously, you wait for your decisions and for your calls too, for many cases. How much of an emotional toll was it that there were times where, obviously, intervention that you were doing were not really working for these patients anymore, especially of how quickly these patients de-escalate, right? Yeah. It was it was rough. You, you always try, and then you try again, and then you try something else. And then when it all fails, you just you feel defeated. Yeah, yeah. Help, and then you see it not help, and then right. It's like these patients and these families come to you hoping that you can save a patient, and not everyone can be saved. And I feel like COVID showed everyone that. And also with the vaccines, yeah, it's, it's a whole new beast with being having the ability to possibly not have such a severe effect, and then yeah. you're blatantly deciding to forego that. I know. I mean, I guess that's why it's called the pandemic of the unvaccinated now. Someone who's working, someone's working in the ICU firsthand, you can see this every day at work. Have cases gone up in your sphere, in your hospital at least, um, with the rise of Delta? Now it is. Now it is. I, when the South is going down, the North is going to start creeping up, which yeah. is scary. Yeah. It, it's, it's like... Got, yeah. yeah. It was also in 2020, last year. So I, I'm pretty sure, I, I like, God forbid... But I think it's inevitable. I think the fall and winter times is going to... Yeah, for sure. And it's so scary. And I talked to one of the physicians too. And she was like, I don't know if the physicians and other healthcare workers have anything left in them still from last year to continue this fight against COVID-19 at the bedside, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people are definitely jaded with this term. Yeah. Especially once they find out that you're unvaccinated. But then once you find out that you're vaccinated, you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. I know, right? It's such a constant struggle. And I think what's also exacerbating all of this is the amount of misinformation still going on online about the vaccine, about some people still think COVID-19 is a hoax. And obviously it comes from those who has 
not stepped foot in the hospital <laughs> the past year or so. We're both on social media a lot, and especially you two. And I know you see and read all of these myths and misinformation. For you, what is the most ridiculous and craziest myth you've read so far about the vaccines or COVID itself? Probably the Nicki Minaj tweet. <laughs> I don't think that... The most recent one, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It flooded the internet throughout really? the time. And for a celebrity to say that, so many people. I know. I know. I, I think I think there's such a big accountability when it comes to public figures, especially celebrities, right? Dropping statements like these about the vaccine, especially with a large following who really believes in their philosophy set as well. And it really makes the fight harder. Oh my gosh. But we've talked a lot so far about COVID-19 and its status. But you're the one who has studied everything pulmonary and respiratory. For those who don't know, who would probably want to hear it in a layman's term, and maybe this is why it's hard for them to grasp the idea of COVID and the, and the vaccines itself. What does COVID-19 actually do to the body, specifically to your field of expertise, the lungs? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. First, it's transmitted through airborne. It's airborne transmission or droplet transmission. And that's why you do contact precautions on airborne. Or you should be doing airborne precautions. Yeah. That's why we wear the face shields because it can enter through the eyes, the nose, or the mouth. And then once it enters, it attaches to the mucosal surfaces. And then it kind of creeps its way in through the nose. And then it enters through the trachea, which is our main air pipe, and then into the lung. Mm -hmm. So once it gets into the lungs or it goes into the cells, when it, the way that it goes into the cells, it just it attaches to the receptor, one of them being ACE2 that we found. And then once it attaches to the receptor, it gets endocytized, what we call it, or it goes basically into the cells. Once it gets into the cells, it then replicates over and over and over and it takes over our mRNA. And then it, because it replicates so much of itself, that's where we call like high viral load. And then it releases itself into the body. And that affects certain organs, especially in the lungs is where it loves. Mm -hmm. Because that, that then leads to edema, swelling in the airways, and that causes a shortness of breath. And that causes leakage of vessels around the lung, which mm -hmm. then leads to the inflammation that we see on the CAT scan chest x-rays. That's specifically what happens in the lungs. And because of all that swelling that it creates, steroids work well because that would decrease the amount of swelling that, um, that can occur. And then thus this decreased inflammation and allowed the airways to open so you can breathe better. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, it's usually too late by the time they come in. Yeah. That like work against it. We try to start steroids early on to yeah. stop the prevention of the virus from attaching itself to the receptor. Regeneron, the antibodies, the monoclonal antibodies, yeah. bavalinumab, <laughs> there's some apps, <laughs> but that essentially prevents, it binds to the receptor itself so that COVID doesn't have anywhere to go. Getting into the trachea. Yeah. Such a complex virus, right? I feel like it's so smart in its own way. It's actually very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Even infectious disease doctors I've talked to are like, I've actually never seen anything like this thus far yet. And I guess that's why it's been such a long battle so far. Because we constantly just learn about it daily, right? I feel like that's why guidelines change all the time too. Because... It's like we're living the virus, so we're seeing the changes each time, especially with the variants in place as well. So when COVID was starting and we see hospitalizations of patients in the critical and acute care unit, the words we usually hear respiratory watch are pneumonia and ARDS and ARF. Are still these the prevalent complications that we see with COVID-19 now? Or has there been changes or new complications, pulmonary specific, that we have seen? I know it's that, but it's quicker. It's sooner. Trump, like, it's, they go down a lot quicker than the alpha and the beta. I'm yeah. Saying. Sure. Meaning that, I don't know why, but the duration, I guess, actually, I do know why. So the delta just replicates very quick. Yeah. Quick, the normal ones. Yeah. Because of that, you get a higher viral load that then mm -hmm. more inflammation creates more mm -hmm. short breath, respiratory status. It's It just takes over your body a lot quicker. Yeah. And you said that cases are rising now, at least in your hospital. How different is it from last year, let's say, or when COVID first started in your hospital? In terms of the numbers or just in terms of... I how guess in terms of numbers or how sick people are, oh, especially yeah. with the unvaccinated. I guess comparison of pre-vaccination period to vaccination now, but those who are still unvaccinated. Yeah, so they get sick a lot quicker. The unvaccinated ones that come in. The vaccinated ones that come in, I only see on pulmonary. I don't see them in the yeah. ICU. But... We did get a couple who were fully vaccinated, I guess, breakthroughs who yeah. ended up 
do, which is super scary. But they they get thicker a lot faster. We expect their cores to be, hopefully, I mean, unfortunately, we know how it goes. It's like it starts with nasal cannula. That's just delivers like a lower oxygen flow. And then it goes to a non-rebreather, which is up to 15 liters of oxygen to be delivered. And then it goes to a BiPAP, which is like the mask or a high flow and then from there it's like it's intubation and then once it's intubation it's sedation paralyzed prone and then their kidney shut down and then you got to do dialysis and it's just like one thing after the other that's usually the trajectory the way that we're seeing it now in unvaccinated it's just it's sicker but this pandemic is different because a lot of people's minds are like oh my god well they suck they didn't get the vaccine so i don't know there could possibly there's probably a bias for sure yeah <laughs> i would say a bias is coming from all fields whether it's the yeah. nurse pca the tech the doctor yeah yeah. all fields yeah. and there's a huge nursing shortage huge so that that's like something that is i'm sure it's nationwide i've been hearing yeah. a lot of stories about yeah. every hospital stuff. yeah it's honestly so scary to think about and just to keep thinking of oh my gosh we have to keep going and going like you know more patients are gonna get and redoing everything that was done like last year when it started and and I guess at a higher and more complicated rate. Honestly, it's so scary, especially with all the breakthrough infections that we see, right? I mean, based on what we see also from data, there is a marked difference between those who are unvaccinated and those who are vaccinated, at least the trajectory of their hospitalization, mm-hmm. right? How many of these patients would you say, though, prognostic-wise, do you think will survive, let's say, those who are intubated now, Delta-wise, who are unvaccinated. There, there was a viral TikTok video of an unvaxxed family, and this one was showing the ECMO machine that I believe her family member was on. And she was talking about it so casually. She was like, oh, the blood runs this and this and this. But I feel like what people don't understand is, even if you recover from COVID-19, right, the post <laughs> The post-disease complications, even when you get home, are actually what's scary, especially with long COVID that we see. Do you round also in clinics as well, outpatient, outside of the hospital? How has that been? I feel like that's a different playing field because I feel like in the hospital, in the critical care, in Pomo, you see like the disease now, right? The severe, severe disease now. People are sick now. But I feel like in the clinic, it's more of like, oops, I'm back with a complication. How has that been for you, covid yeah, I get to see them from the pulmonary standpoint. Yeah. So we've been seeing a lot of people who have continued shortness of breath, who continue to have um, blood clots, who yeah. continue to have mind fog and and pulmonary complications we see in five different forms on long COVID, I guess. One of them is reactive airway disease. Because of all that huge inflammation in the airways, their airways spasm, kind of like an asthmatic picture. Yeah. So they're long-term inhalers. We call bronchiolitis obliterans, which is inflammation of the smaller airways that stay forever. And you kind of treat that with like steroids, but they're higher prone to infections. They're higher prone to pneumonias over and over a lifetime. So we recommend vaccinations for them, the pneumonia vaccine, the flu vaccine. Then we also see fibrosis. Fibrosis is end stage. And at that point, you need a transplant. Um, There's nothing else that can be done, unfortunately. They're on long-term oxygen forever, which is shitty. Then we also do see effusions. So we see like fluid in their lungs, and then they have to be on uh, like Lasix to to decrease the amount of effusion or get thoracentesis to remove the fluids or we see heart failure. So if it's not the lungs, it's the yeah, heart. The heart. We should yeah, progress to multi-organ dysfunction at the end, right? Yeah, because COVID does cause heart failure. A lot of yeah. the risks that, um, that line the lungs also line the heart. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's also frustrating from the remarks of the unvaccinated, right? You say it's just like the flu. Uh, <laughs> I won't get it because I got COVID before. And even if I do get COVID, I'll just be sick for a while and I'll be okay. But I feel like they fail or decide not to realize the amount of complications that happens even after COVID, right? All the complications that you just said. Or basically, the whole body goes haywire (laughs) after all this. And it's just scary and crazy to think about. You just don't know who it will affect, right? Especially, obviously, term complications yeah even kids they're they've been talking about long covid within kids yeah which is horrible yeah yeah which is so sad especially for kids too i talked with dr anita patel um, a few days ago who's a pediatric critical care care. doctor and we were just talking about kids and how sad it is to see where 
even outside of the pediatric demographic, just people in general who are healthy with no past medical history get COVID and that's it. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's like really that's it. organ from head to toe. Yeah, literally. Hey, Yeah, like is, again. Yeah, it is so sad. Sad, like the whole body is just like effed up by this virus, right? Which is so crazy. How do people with existing pulmonary comorbidities, let's say like asthma or COPD, how do they fare with COVID nineteen? I guess we can compare alpha variants and delta variant now, if there is a difference at all in how they fare. Yeah, it was actually interesting because the thought was with asthmatics they would do really bad. So a lot yeah. of my stayed home didn't leave their house at all. <laughs> Surprisingly, there were a lot of studies that showed that they didn't do as bad. Yeah. And the because they're on corticosteroids, inhaled yeah. corticosteroids for Controlled their own. Asthma, yeah. And they have a lot of these interferons, a lot of interleukin yeah. higher yeah. compared to a normal person, which is yeah. why they mm-hmm. reactive airway disease to start. And because yeah. of that, they, they fared better, surprisingly, at least asthmatics. COPD, yeah. they did bad, but it was almost like a COPD exacerbation. The different subtypes of COPD, more specifically emphysema, that subtype, because they already have large blebs in their lungs, they yeah. did work. If you tube them, then they were they had like the higher rates of pneumothorax, normal yeah. pneumothorax, and required chest tubes, and then oof, it was bad. <laughs> yeah, and I think that was a big fear, right? Because I have so many friends who are asthmatics. And even from last year, they're like, oh my gosh, am I going to be okay <laughs> if I get covid and it was very interesting to see how asthmatics fared well, even with COVID-19, yeah. right? I mean, I guess there is a difference between those who are not controlled and those who right. are controlled yeah. asthmatics as well. I mean, I feel like the whole idea of comorbidities was just a fear for everybody. I guess those with diabetes and other cardiac problems, especially those with autoimmune diseases. I think it was just a fear for everybody. And Diabetes, like, for sure, did worse. Obesity. Yeah, yeah. I would say those are the two top that I can think of, like right yeah. off my right off yeah. the top. Yeah, I mean, obesity remains to be just the general high risk for COVID all throughout this time. Anyways, I guess so much inflammatory markers as well. That's just like barring from portion. Yeah, everything is, is haywire too, especially when COVID comes in. What you said about the fibrosis and just transplants as well. How has the whole lung transplant industry been since COVID-19 came out? Do we have data on that, on how much transplants there has been or, or the need for those in relation to COVID-19, like fibrosis-wise? Yeah, there's no official data as yet, but Henry Ford, they've done a couple of mm-hmm. bilateral lung transplants for post-COVID mm-hmm. fibrosis. Northwestern, they're doing a few posts. Mm-hmm. They're doing a few. There are centers around the country that are doing it. It is yeah. very risk, though, just yeah. given the lungs. <laughs> they carry a yeah. lot of articles within them. Yeah. So the precautions they take are very high. There's like a huge checklist that you need to meet <laughs> if yeah. you're going to be considered for lung transplant. But we have listed a couple of patients for lung transplant ourselves that we see post term, unfortunately. But their lungs just too much inflammation and they just never recovered and like it's playing like russian relay with your life you don't want to be that person yeah i mean obviously we know lungs to be like the facilitator of the whole oxygenation process of the body right and i feel like that's been such a big problem all throughout this time oxygenation ventilation oh my gosh i remember when we transitioned to covid icu and everyone was in bipap and obviously it's like Mentation alteration because of the lack of oxygen, right? And everyone's just taking off their BiPAP. And all the doors were closed during that time, obviously, to minimize contagion. And literally, their oxygen would drop from like, I mean, it wouldn't even reach 95. It'd be like 93, and it would go down to like six right away. I'm like running, I'm running to the room. It is uh, like severe PTSD. And I I bet it's the same for you too, right? Yeah, Yeah, it's critical care. Yeah. Like repeating itself, but no, you're right. And that's actually a very important part as to why a lot of them coded because mm-hmm. their apneic time, that's the time mm-hmm. that, that you have once you take them off their oxygen, essentially, or like yeah. whatever, whether it's face mask, nasal cannula, high flow, bypass to put the tube in when you're going to tube them, their apneic time is like seconds. So if you don't yeah. intubate it away, then they're, they lose oxygenation. They lose oxygenation to their heart. So their heart yeah. stops. Yeah. And then next thing you hear, code blue. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm out of codes that we... Yeah. Like... Code after code after code. And sad to say, there weren't a lot of successful codes. Right? I remember we had... Um, 
I don't think I think I had I don't think I had one successful COVID course to this day. Yeah, we had like ten patients pass away in one night last year, and I was like, wow, this is this is such a beast. It's like an invisible enemy, right? That's that's running through the whole hospital, and you have no idea what to do. Like you go through all the algorithms and. Well, there was no algorithm in the first place because we had no idea how to tackle it. It's like, what is going on? Oh, my gosh. oh we do have some questions if you would like to. Um, yeah. And one question says, what is your take on COVID cases being very minimal in sub-Saharan Africa? Would you say there is inaccurate data due to strained health systems or there's some other explanation? I can't I don't know too much of the data on sub-Saharan Africa, but yeah. I do. I had to guess, I would say a lot of them are unreported. Yeah. Unreported. I don't think that the data is accurate. Yeah. I think that there's more, especially with this, the vaccine inequity in general. Yeah. I think that in places where there is vaccine, they're just not giving the vaccine. That's gonna that's it's gonna be a lot of a lot of people who don't get the vaccine, and unfortunately, they're gonna die at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I guess a big thing is like access to healthcare, right? Especially when it comes to insurance. There are people who are willing to die at home because they, I mean, they really don't want to burden their families. Yeah, yeah, burden their families, right? Yeah, and there are a few questions about the vaccine, which I really want to delve into as well. And there seems to be a running theme about them, about myocarditis and inflammatory response to the vaccine. One of the questions says, I'm seeing people concerned over myocarditis as a vaccine side effect. Seems like it's mostly in teenage male athletes. Could you talk about this, how to approach this topic when trying to promote vaccination? That's a great question. That has been extensively studied. There was a huge New England Journal of Medicine article out talking about that. And you are right. It is in mainly teenage adult males. And they also did find it under 40 years old. It is myocarditis that was found. And myocarditis is just inflammation. It's inflammation of the heart. It's We see that with different viruses like Coxsackie, diphtheria. There's so many viruses that we see that with, uh, even idiopathic after post-cabbage. And it's a very easy treatment. It's aspirin. You can do high-dose aspirin. You can do colchicine. You can do steroids, and that will decrease inflammation. That, compared to COVID, the risks and benefits are near to none. They're, they're oranges to even compare. And because of that, we still do, we as mm-hmm. in the professionals, healthcare field in general, we do still push the vaccine because yeah. just because of risks and benefits. Everything has a risk. Yeah. Everything It is definitely something to look out for. Yeah. Okay? yeah. Just keeping it in the back of your head. If you do start feeling symptoms of chest pain, if you do start yeah. feeling of heaviness in your chest, get it worked up earlier rather than later. Yeah. And I feel like you've seen cases of these myocarditis in relation to vaccines as self-resolving, right? For right. Um, many, Yeah. yeah. As opposed to myocarditis in relation to COVID-19 virus itself, right? Where it just goes in a cascade of <laughs> just organ yeah. dysfunction after that, right? Actually, it's a very good point that you bring that up because the articles in the journals did actually say that higher amounts of cases are reported with COVID compared to with the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. And like, I like what you said with the risk benefit. I mean, I feel like that's everything in medicine too, right? It's a risk benefit analysis. As long as the benefits outweigh the risks, we are willing to take that risk right and i think that's what we have seen with the vaccines as well and i think that's what every physician especially on instagram has been trying to promote as well right benefit the benefit the benefit outweighs the risk the benefit outweighs the risk and this is a very great point and it's that point that will save lives right yeah hopefully yeah hopefully yeah do you think it's possible to have inflammatory response to the vaccine i think i'm having one have had weird times pressure and headaches not sick and not allergies right after second dose and it's been going on for three plus weeks doctor said she believes it's a side effects from vax and also pressure behind my eyes started prednisone today to see if it helps but it's really been depressing symptoms from vaccine can present in any form per se and it does essentially release a cytokine release syndrome kind of technical words yes because that's what point of the vaccine is to work the immune system the immune system does release cytokines but as to treatment wise i would do supportive treatment i would talk to the doctor your doctor specifically about the prednisone part because it can depress the um, amount of antibodies that are being made essentially so i would definitely talk to like a doctor about that and see maybe if they want NSAIDs or they want to approach it differently yeah and i think it's also a good point to just in general, even outside of this question, that we do expect some, and we do want some immune response after vaccination, right? That's how we do know it is working. I feel like there's anti-vaxxers too who forgot uh, the side effects of the flu vaccine, right? That they take every year. For the COVID vaccine, they're like, oh my gosh, I, I had a fever. I am having muscle aches. Oh my gosh, my lymph nodes are swollen. This vaccine is a curse. Uh, when 
that's the same thing that the flu vaccine <laughs> does as well, right? I mean, that's the whole hope of this immunization series is to is to get our immunity. Uh, but because it's the COVID vaccine. Well, because it's a COVID vaccine. COVID vaccine, yeah. <laughs> and I really do want to talk a lot about the COVID vaccine tonight. Because I feel like this really is one of our way, or it is our way out, out of all of this. If there's one person out there who is very hesitant about the COVID-19 vaccines for whatever reasons, as a physician, as someone who has trained and studied for years and years in the science of the human body. What is your piece of, I don't know if it's advice or encouragement for them regarding this vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, especially because a lot of my patients do come to me with that specific complaint or I see on their chart they haven't been vaccinated. Okay. I just, the first question to them is, were you vaccinated? Even if I know that they weren't. And if they say no, I ask them, I just kind of gently ask, okay. I say that, I start there and then I ask them, uh, why? Or what's, do you have any concerns about it? Are you, or I ask, are you planning on getting it? Because then I can kind of gauge out, maybe they just have some thoughts in their mind that they want to clarify. Or if they say no right away, then I'll know that they're hard pressed, kind of anti, I guess. So that's how it kind of starts. Then I ask, if they, if they say maybe, then I kind of gauge out, okay, so do you have any concerns? And then kind of address the concerns one by one. So most people, though, who do say it are pretty dead set no, and you can't change their minds. They're coming in with one answer, and no matter what you say, they're not going to change their mind either this way or that way. I do have a few that do come and I can ease their concerns, give them the facts, show them the studies in my hand and pull up yeah. the articles. I have yeah. two articles printed in my office about that specifically about one question that's asked over and over. If you got COVID and you get the vaccine versus you got COVID and, and don't get the vaccine. There was yeah. that study that came out in CDC actually of yeah. 207 in Kentucky. They, they tested people who got COVID, this is the old variant, and they didn't get vaccinated compared to people who got COVID and got vaccinated. The people who got COVID and didn't get vaccinated uh, were more likely to die compared to the people who got COVID and then got vaccinated. So it does show something there that even though you got COVID, you should still get the vaccine. Now, natural immunity on its own is very effective, but with these new changing mutants and these new changing variants, we don't know the efficacy. There have been a couple papers out there, but the data, the peer-reviewed data that's out there, it's not peer-reviewed yet. The big article that was pre-printed, it's yeah. not data yet. And yeah. even though we're bringing that over and over, it needs to be peer-reviewed, it needs to be authenticated before <laughs> we can really make that right. Yeah, for sure. It's really a struggle as well, trying to, you know, navigate people as well, right? Especially for physicians, right? Who really are the ones who encourage these medical interventions, especially also just vaccination for this preventative against COVID-19. There are just some people, though, who will, no matter what you say, will not move. They will, they will not get it at all. Yeah. And I think it's a big topic as well with natural immunity versus immunity with the vaccine, from the vaccine. Right. right? So mandates have been going on in my hospital for healthcare workers. And I'm sad to say there are a big pool of healthcare workers who are against the vaccine because they're dead set that their natural immunity is sufficient. They see the worst of the worst and yet they're still against it. I know. It's so ironic, right? It's such an oxymoron for me. It's like, I always say like, our professions are based in science, right? And it is scientific data that's telling us how effective and safe our, the vaccines are. And we do have a question here, which I believe is a very, very important and great question. For people of color who have a mistrust of the system due to historical stories and are vaccine hesitant, what would be your best approach in educating them on why they should trust this? Yeah, that's very relevant, extremely relevant, especially today. I would show the studies of Hispanics and Blacks being treated more in the hospital, essentially. They're, the, they're higher risk to get it because of the comorbidities. Just in their genes, the genetic bearing makeup, they do have some predisposition to kidney disease, high blood pressure. And because of this, they have a higher likelihood to get severe COVID compared to non-Blacks and non-Hispanics. So because of that, it's more important that they do. And yeah. all data shows that that is a higher ethnicity population that does get COVID. Yeah. So if it's spreading in the community, then it's concern. Yeah, definitely. Definitely there is a mistrust, certain racial demographics, right? And because of history. But you're right, it really is about the data. It's at the point where it is a public health emergency and it's really just about saving the lives. It's reaching out to save the lives. And that's what we have seen so far, right? That these vaccines do save lives. I think a big topic recently about the vaccines as well were the boosters. 
Booster, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? I think there's a split people um, between, yes, let's get the booster shots out to everybody. Let's get protected from these variants versus those who are like, keep them for those who are autoimmune or high risk. And why don't we share the vaccines to the rest of the world who have no access to vaccines right now? What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's important that the general U.S. public get the boosters as of this moment? I was very mixed, extremely mixed, especially because the data that's out there mm-hmm. is not great. But as I'm starting to see more and more big breakthroughs, mm. I, I definitely believe that a booster is needed. I don't think if we don't get the booster, I don't even know if we'll make it to yeah. see another shot. Yeah. There, there's also a difference. People are saying like booster and third third dose. So the yeah. third dose is needed for people who are immunocompromised, who are yeah. higher. That's the third dose. And that's because yeah. their body just does not produce antibodies yeah. that it for them, this is the third dose. For people yeah. like us, this is a booster. Yeah. A booster is to hopefully increase our, our immunity, our, our yeah. antibodies to this this Delta variant. Yeah. This, and I think that that's extremely important because because breakthroughs do happen and they just get they get just as sick, if not worse. I don't know. I, I wouldn't say at worse, but they definitely get sick. I just I think that in order for us to overcome this, and now uh, the data I guess from Israel or what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They showed good data yeah. and is doing only for above 50 years old is yeah. what I thought that could have changed. But I think even though that could be a population of interest, I think people who are exposed are high risk. If you're exposed to this high viral load day after day after day after day, then I definitely think you need the booster. Yeah, if you for sure. Like healthcare workers where you're in the air and it's circulating, I think you need the booster. Yeah. And honestly, with all these variants, I... I have no idea how, I guess, the the side of those who are for oh, not purely natural immunity, right? I think the whole natural immunity conversation obviously started from even from alpha variant, right? But as we're seeing these variants time and time again, we do see waning immunity from natural immunity, which is why it's so important that people do get vaccinated and get that protection, right? That like and for immunity as well, so we can all yeah, go. yeah. Yeah, I agree. For everyone around us, for like grandparents and this and that, it's it's important for everybody. And also it's important because if, so, if someone gets sick, then that's another bed for a heart attack. That's another bed for a cabbage. That's another bed for a stroke. So like that article that just came out of that, that 43-year-old man who's like 34 hospitals. We've been refusing people in our hospitals now because we just don't have beds. We don't have nurses. We don't have staff. And it's it's crazy. I, I didn't even, I didn't believe it until I started seeing it. And I was like, oh, our beds are awful. Every day we get an email, like, mm-hmm. or not discharge, but yeah. move, people, move people. And we're just like, we're trying, but how are we going to move this intubated person? Like, it's crazy. Healthcare is on another level now. I know. And I have read posts and news of like, oh, this patient had to be transferred to a different state because there was no more bed in their home state. Yeah. Which- so crazy. Yeah. Right? For the most simple, simplest cases that yeah. could be managed in no problem in a hospital on a regular day. Right. Right? Uh, which is so crazy. What is your prognosis on this whole COVID situation? Do you think there's an end to this? No, I think it's gonna be, to- I think it's gonna be like the flu. Yeah. I, I think that it would hopefully cases for people won't be as bad. But I'm hoping it'll become like the flu. This is yeah. just because it just started. We're just starting to learn about it. But hopefully we're able to create some sort of oral drug or some sort mm-hmm. of yeah. oral um, preventative. Yeah, yeah. There's, I know that they're looking at intranasal vaccines. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I think that's great. And that's very big because this is yeah. one of the biggest ways of where COVID replicates. Yeah, I agree. And it really roots all down to immunization. I mean, it is disheartening to see how much mistrust there is still when it comes to vaccines. I feel like we really try to reach it in a place of empathy, right? <laughs> but We try. <laughs> we try. But it has come to a point where it's a preventable disease, right? Yeah. COVID-19 is a preventable disease by vaccination. And people don't take the measures to prevent it um, through the vaccine, right? And it's just so sad because there are countries across the world who would die to right right now i agree and disagree a little bit with the word preventative because 
breakthroughs. So I think it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Preventable for severe. Preventable, yeah, pretty severe disease. Yeah. Severe disease and possibly long term COVID. Yeah. Your long term COVID because that's what yeah. the studies are now showing that if you get vaccinated compared to unvaccinated, and you get a breakthrough, you're less likely to get long term COVID yeah. compared to yeah. the. Un- how do you approach people who are holistic and refuse the vaccine because they are all natural? Very good question. Um, it's a really hard one. I, sometimes you get to a point where you don't even know if you can like say anything. So yeah. you just like, you listen. Yeah. you listen and then you do your best holistic wise. They're just very much about their vitamins. I mean, you try to give them the data, you try to do what you can do. Unfortunately, 99.9% of the the time when it's somebody like that, I I'm not gonna have luck. Yeah, yeah, most of the time, right? Yeah, they're yeah. already dead set. Um, yeah, there there was a viral video a few weeks ago, and she was like, "There are two keys to stop and the COVID nineteen pandemic." And someone was re- scientists reacting. She was like, "Antibodies and vaccination, right?" <laughs> and then the person's like, "Vitamin D and zinc." <laughs> and it's like, oh my goodness, actually. As a nurse, it's so frustrating to see how many viral TikTok videos there are of nurses, holistic nurses who talk about vitamin C, zinc, vitamin D supplements, and also hesperidine to treat COVID-19, but not a single mention on the COVID-19 vaccine or, you know, being safe through masking and stuff like that. It's so sad that sometimes it comes from our healthcare workers themselves, co-workers themselves, right? Yeah, it's really shed light. It's so mind-boggling, right? <laughs> in my country, Nigeria, every country is over-the-counter, including opioids. When hydrochloroquine, hydroxychloroquine was a thing, people went to pharmacies overdosing on chloroquine without doctor's prescription. And I think it could be said the same with ivermectin now, yeah. right? Yeah, mine is a new thing. It's... I was like, what, seriously? Bad, right for people to take a horse deworming medication i guess in part hypothetically in the beginning you could say that people were just like they were just desperate for a cure right people just <laughs> want to get better and that makes sense and we empathize with that right obviously no one wants to die people want to get better but when data comes out and say that these are not it right and people it, still do it yeah even with the fda approval of Cominardi, right First of all, who thought of that name? Secondly, um, with the FDA approval of... There were people who were like, oh, it's not even FDA approved yet. And then when it got FDA approved, there's... Quick, yeah. It was too quick. And yet they placed their full confidence in these natural remedies, which are not FDA approved in the first place. Like I say, it's going to be an ongoing battle. It's sad to see when it's our co-workers themselves in the healthcare sphere who are disseminating this misinformation. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially people you work with every day and you're just like, oh, that's how you really feel. There was actually an article that I just read that came out saying one in seven Americans like lost a friend or dropped a friend because of COVID-19 misinformation. Like the, the views just clashed. One in seven people. <laughs> I was like, wow. That's which is huge, which yeah. is so huge. Yeah. Uh, it's sad per se, but also I think it also sheds a light on healthcare as well, on uh, just really integrating science into their practice. And how much of a play social media plays? I agree. I agree. I think people are so quick to share so much. Oh, look at this viral post, right? And it is the most horrendous thing you'll ever hear about the vaccine. Yeah. What a year it has been fighting COVID and fighting the other pandemic, which is misinformation, right? But thank you for all of the work that you do. For sure, it has not been easy. And a question I wanted to ask was through all that you have gone through the past year with COVID-19, how crazy and exhausting and internally and emotionally um, disheartening it has been. How do you cope? How have you coped with all of that? How do you decompress from all of this? Yeah. I had, to, I had to learn, I think, and I don't think I still know exactly how. I think speaking to my colleagues has been help. In the beginning, we all kind of shut shut down. Like, we just kind of really didn't talk to each other. We were just there to work, go home, and then kept to ourselves. Didn't talk to our families because everybody was just so overwhelmed, trying to process your emotions. I watched a ton of TV because <laughs> I felt like reality TV was just letting loose, not thinking about anything. So TV is one thing for me. Sleeping. Yeah. Actually, it's hard to sleep. Um, I would yeah. say... <laughs> 
I say I started opening up to colleagues, and I think that was good. That and then um, being active, like yeah. taking the Peloton, riding on the Peloton, I think definitely your mind just lets loose, get the serotonin release. Yeah. I feel like also what this pandemic has shown to everybody was um, the importance of community, right? And yeah. Community. Especially I feel like after the social distancing and isolation and quarantines, I got COVID back in September of 2020 and, and I was symptomatic, like symptomatic. So I isolated for two weeks and wow, how hard it was to be alone for two weeks. And I just can't imagine to those who do live alone, like, in other places as well when COVID started. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it just reminded you of how important it is to open up and to find presence in other people. What do you think the biggest thing that COVID has taught you? I guess even beyond as a doctor, maybe just life in general, I guess. Not to take anything for granted. When you see your parents, give them the biggest hugs. <laughs> If you have grandparents around, really appreciate them. Appreciate the little moments with your friends. Yeah, I agree. Everyone's going to go into quarantine again. It'll be another, like, yeah. year. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And I feel like also the people who get hospitalized for COVID, right? I feel They're like bad, yeah. They don't expect that they won't go home anymore, right? Or their families, at least. Like, they don't know that they're, if their family were going home alive. Yeah. After, after the hospitalization. So it's been, it's so sad. But thank you for all of the work that you do it's been so vital and so I, i can't imagine how hard it's been for you especially as a physician and honestly through all of this my mind has just been towards the residents oh my gosh especially the first year residents the first who got year out of medical yeah. school met with covid in their intern year oh. wow i cannot oh, imagine Yeah, like, they're MVPs. My heart goes out to all the graduating nurses because all they know how to treat is COVID. All the first-year residents, exactly like you said, med students. Their education has been affected so much. They've been having to learn to learn online. All their interviews have been online. Like, I don't even under- understand medical education these days. I'm like, wait, what? You did that rotation through the computer? Like, uh, medical I education. Know. I know. Online? What? My heart goes out to them. So we haven't spoken about... Educators, they educators, deserve. Yes, actually, the true MVPs of America right now. They're killing it with staying in school, risking their lives to teach yes. Yes. The future generations. Yes, thank you to the educators. Super agree. Super agree. Wow. I mean, yes, definitely. The pandemic has been hard for everybody. Every- everybody. People lost jobs. People lost families. People lost businesses, and. I think that has been such a motivation as well for our job, right? Like just to, for all of this to end per se. And that's why I wish everyone just take measures to protect themselves and everybody. Wow, it has been so informational, so educational. Thank you so much. You are so easy and so fun to talk to. Um, I have learned so much and I'm sure everybody's learned so much as well. And do you have a closing message for everybody? I would say please get the vaccine if you haven't been vaccinated. Tell everybody you know to get the vaccine. Take Wear a mask up these days. I don't think it's going to be pleasant in the next coming months, unfortunately. It's not only coronavirus that's going out there. It's rhinovirus. It's adenovirus. It's parainfluenza. Uh, it's, there's a lot. It's mask up. Yeah. Be and it's very good to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for your time this night. I know you worked earlier, but thank you for granting me the time. Um, I have been so excited for our live the past few weeks. Yeah, me too. We'll definitely have to do this again at a later yes, date. We will. We will. And like like I said, like there's more to learn with COVID, especially in the pulmonary field. So we'll have you again, Dr. Nina, when that time comes. Thank you so much. Hope you have a good night. Bye, everybody. Thank you.